0: Join me in your copy of God's Word in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Hopefully by now your Bible is just starting to fall open to the book of Acts. And uh, uh, if you don't know how to get there, grab someone next to you and ask them to help you find your way to Acts chapter 6. As we've looked at the book of Acts uh, beginning uh, early this year and, and even up to now... We have seen, and and hopefully you have have noticed, but if not, I'll make it obvious to us this morning. We have seen this sort of uh, inward and outward perspective that Luke is giving to us of the Uh, disciples here in the book of Acts and of the the church in its earliest gathering. We get these kind of zoomed in looks at the, the disciples as they gather together and the things that they do, and then Luke will zoom out to look at what the disciples are doing out in the world, and then he'll zoom back in to look at their gathering together, zoom back out to look at their ministry in the world. This inward outward sort of activity, life perspective on the life of the disciples has shown us to this point several things in Acts. Already in Acts chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2, we saw there that the disciples are a Holy Spirit filled and empowered people who, as we saw specifically in Acts chapter 2, preach the gospel of Jesus as Peter gives his first Christian sermon in Acts 2. At the end of Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42 and continuing through Acts chapter 3, we see there that the disciples of Jesus are those who prioritize worshiping together. We see that at the end of Acts chapter 2. They prioritize worshiping and gathering together so that they can then preach the gospel together with boldness in the world as we see Peter and John preaching the gospel in Acts chapter three. Then at the end of Acts chapter four, going into Acts chapter five, we see there that Jesus followers are those who give generously to one another. You remember the story of Barnabas who sold a field and gave all of the The proceeds of the sale to the disciples to be uh, distributed to those that had need. Jesus followers are those who give generously to one another because they have received salvation out of the hand of a generous God who sent his son to die for us and be raised from the dead. And this generosity that believers know serves as a greater evidence of the truth of the gospel that they then preach. Now, here in Acts chapter 6, we zoom in on the church once again to see their gathering together. Here in Acts chapter 6, we get another look at the inner working and the inner life of these first disciples, this group of believers in Jerusalem, as we see that they uh, together strive to meet real ministry needs among themselves. As the church in Acts grows and new ministry concerns arise here in Acts chapter 6, we find the apostles delegating non-preaching, non-teaching leadership tasks to qualified and recognized men of the church. My my goal, my desire for us today as we look at Acts chapter 6 and the first few verses there is that we would see the wisdom and the godliness of delegating certain tasks, particularly those that are in administrative and financial, financial ministries of the church, Delegating those tasks away from pastoral leaders to those who are called and qualified among us and also to be on the lookout for those from from whom among us might might fit that role might be able to lead and to minister to the church in those ways. And so just as God gives wisdom to the apostles and to the church in Acts chapter 6 to ensure that ministry needs are cared for through, through selected and qualified servants in the church, so also should the local church today, our local church today, select qualified and recognized individuals to serve various needs that will allow those who are called to preach and to teach and to lead and to pray to focus intently on those tasks. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Would you stand with me this morning in honor of reading God's word together? The physician and, and missionary companion of Paul the Apostle, Luke, continues here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing this Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we look at this uh, zoomed-in picture, the life of the disciples here in Acts chapter 6, the first reality that that we come into contact with, the first principle that is on display, is this in verse 1, that growing churches have growing needs. Growing churches have growing needs. And and the growing needs in the life of the church in Jerusalem among these first disciples caused a, a bit of a conflict there in the church. Let's look at the parties involved in this conflict. Here in this verse, chapter, uh, chapter or verse 1 of chapter 6, we're told by Dr. Luke that after some time, he doesn't say specifically, he just says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, something that, that maybe to this point up to five years has passed from the, the falling of the Spirit uh, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So this may be up to five years after that point. In those days, the disciples, the church, were increasing in number. The church continued to grow. Now, this immediately tells us that the good news of salvation by faith in Jesus is continuing to spread in Jerusalem. The the fact that the, the number of disciples is increasing means that the gospel of Jesus is going out and people are responding to it by repenting from their sins and turning in faith to Christ. These that Luke calls disciples are not just people who are willing to be associated with the apostles. These aren't people who are just trying to be part of a club. But these disciples are those who have heard and understood the truth of who Jesus of Nazareth was, who the risen Jesus is. These disciples are those who have consciously, that is mindfully, on purpose, and even in light of threats to their safety and well-being, they've seen other disciples, other followers of Jesus, be beaten for their faith, even in light of all of that. They have chosen to publicly say, I am turning from my sin to be made right with God by trusting all I am and ever will be to Jesus. Jesus, who died from for my sin and who rose from the dead and is now seated next to the God, the father on high. Friend, by this definition, can you rightly call yourself a disciple of Jesus? That's a question worth asking every time we we see the disciples gathering in Acts. We need to know who they are and why they are who they are. That they have trusted their lives fully to Christ. They want their lives, their fellowship, their gathering together to be shaped by the gospel itself. That they might bear gospel fruit in all that they do. Friend, can you rightly call yourself a disciple of Jesus this morning? Can you rightly call yourself a Christian? Or do you call yourself a Christian merely because you're associating with other people who call themselves Christians? We are, we are not saved, we are not redeemed, we're not rescued from our life of sin because of who we associate with in this world. We are saved by, uh, for, from our sins by the death of Jesus Christ in our place who paid the penalty for our sins and who rose from the dead. We are saved by placing faith in this, in this person, Jesus, God who takes on flesh to pay for our rebellion against God. Knowing who these disciples are in Acts chapter 6, friend, can you call yourself a Christian? That's a question to ask yourself this morning. Well, we continue to look at the different parties among the disciples that are involved in the conflict here. There are two. First, we have the Hellenistic Jews. These are those Jewish believers in Jesus. Now, mind you, at this time, the, the, the church only exists in Jerusalem in Acts 6. It's not yet spread to the rest of the world. All of the believers in Jesus in Acts chapter 6 are all Jewish background believers. So we have two groups. We have first the Hellenistic Jews, and these are those Jewish believers in Jesus who are there at the church in Jerusalem, who were not born in Jerusalem, but in the other Greek-speaking parts of the world. Hellenistic means, uh, means uh, uh, this is a strange way of speaking, Greekized. They've been made sort of Greek culturally and in the way that they speak. Likely, these are those Jews who, who were from areas where the, the Hebrews Uh, were sent during the Babylonian dispersion, about uh, 500 B.C. or so. Those areas were later conquered and Hellenized. They were made Greek by Alexander the Great when he conquered most of the known world at the time. Now, by faith, they are Jewish. They believe in God, the God of the Old Testament. But they would have spoken primarily Greek day to day. And in most other non-religious matters would have been culturally Greek as well. They are Hellenistic Jews. Then on the other side, the other party involved, we have native Hebrew-speaking or Hebrew Jews who are speaking Aramaic as their primary language. Now this group would have been constituted of those Jews who could trace their lineage and families to those uh, who returned to Palestine, to Israel, from Babylon when, uh, when Persia allowed them to return. Now, there may likely have been among them a, a certain presumption of higher status as, as the, the righteous remnant people, right? The holy ones that God preserved, that God saw fit to send to reestablish his people in Israel. And so between these Aramaic-speaking native Hebrew Jews and these Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews, there arises a conflict. Now, the nature of the conflict is this, that the widows of the, among the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows believing in Jesus... We're not receiving their uh, uh, appropriated allotment of bread or, or of money to purchase bread each day. Now, this is actually a bigger deal than you might think, because care for widows and care for orphans, care for those who are especially vulnerable in the church among God's people, has always been a distinctive mark of God's people. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, almost all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, We read this, God says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, the prophet of God, God speaking through Isaiah says this, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And in the New Testament, in James chapter 1, verse 27 we find there James giving instruction to the, to the New Testament, the Christian church. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that God's people, primarily who are of Jewish uh, background belief here in Acts chapter 6, for some of their widows to go uncared for, to be neglected in this distribution, was a major deal. And you can imagine it would cause quite a conflict. Care for the needy in the church has always been a clear mark of the believers. In both Acts chapter two, verses forty-two through forty-seven, and in Acts four, thirty-two through thirty-seven, uh, where, where there we read of the church giving out of their excess, giving generously for the care of others, for the needs in the church. But what seems to be happening here in Acts chapter six? is that because of the language and cultural barriers between the majority of of, uh, Aramaic-speaking Hebrew Jewish believers and and the difference between them and the Greek-speaking Jewish believers, that the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking widows that that, uh, we see here, uh, because of the language barrier, those Hellenistic widows were not receiving their daily distribution of bread or money for food that others were. And rightly so, this becomes a real and serious concern of the Greek-speaking believers whose widows are being neglected. Now, The size of the church, some would say at this time, some, some scholars posit, might be as many as 20,000 in Jerusalem. Right? In, 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 in as little as five years, this movement of, of uh, disciples of Jesus has grown from a band of 12 to maybe upwards of 20,000 the size of the church in Jerusalem would have made it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for the 12 apostles themselves to meet this great need of making sure that all of the widows were cared for on their own. And because of the quick growth of the church, these needs, this need arises that was not previously anticipated, right? If it was anticipated, we wouldn't be reading about the conflict here in Acts 6. But this need arises, and this need must be dealt with. Growing churches have Growing needs, in light of this, I, I think what we need to do in, in applying this the, the, this principle, this reality to our own church is to understand this that churches and, and especially this church, must recognize legitimate ministry needs and communicate them with grace. We must recognize legitimate needs and communicate them with grace. Now, let me focus in on the second half of that application before we look at the first communicating them with grace. We read in Acts chapter six, verse one. In these days the disciples are increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. That word complaint has has with it the same idea of grumbling or murmuring or 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 gossiping about a problem that is going on. It's a Characteristic that the, uh, that the Israelites uh, display regularly in Exodus and, and, and in Leviticus and in Numbers as they grumble about, oh man, things were so much better when we were slaves in Egypt, right? That's the same kind of grumbling that's going on here. So we should not, so it's a legitimate complaint, but it's not necessarily being communicated with grace. So when there are legitimate needs or even perceived needs in the body of a, of a church, they need to be communicated with grace. But before communicating them with grace or communicating them at all, we need to decide and determine whether these needs that we perceive are legitimate ministry needs, whether they're legitimate or not. And to help us to to determine whether they're legitimate needs or not, there are two questions that, that help us to do that. Ask yourself these questions anytime you see a potential need in the church. You may want to write this down. First of all, is this ministry, is this need, Is this something that is commanded by God or critical to the mission of making disciples? Is it something God has already commanded us to do or is it it something that is absolutely critical that we do so that we can fulfill the Great Commission? If the answer is yes, then you meet that need. You find a way to meet that need. If the answer is no or maybe, ask yourself a second question. If this need is left unmet, if we don't take care of this problem, if we don't meet this need in the church, will this ministry... Will this need hinder us from fulfilling the mission that God has given? So is it commanded? Is it, is it absolutely critical to the mission of making disciples? Maybe. I'm not really sure. So ask the second question. If I don't meet this need, is it going to keep us from making disciples? Is it going to hurt our efforts to make disciples? If the answer is yes, then you meet that need. But if the answer is no, then maybe you just leave it alone and move on. Maybe it's not a legitimate need. Church, some... Ministry needs so-called ministry needs are just hobbies that some people are looking for the church to finance I'll say that again. Some perceived ministry needs are just hobbies that some people are looking for the church to finance If someone came to me this week and I hope this doesn't apply to any of you But someone came to me this week and said pastor. We really need to have a model airplane ministry here in this church Boy, there, I'm telling you, I've been, making, I've been making model airplanes for decades, and I'm really good at it. And there are people in this community that just won't come to know Christ unless we have a model airplane ministry here in the church. I'm going to look at you. If you come to me and ask me that question, I'm going to say, number one, is this ministry commanded by God or critical to the mission of making disciples? I don't think so. Number two, but we, but we always want to ask the second question. If, left unmet, if we don't have a model airplane ministry... Is that going to hurt us in our, in our efforts to make disciples? I think the answer there is also no. So, friend, if you want to make model airplanes to the glory of God and use that to connect to your neighbors uh, and, and, and invite them over to make model airplanes in your living room and share the gospel with them, praise God, I want to encourage you to do that. Please, by all means, do that. But don't look to the church to finance your hobby, okay? Okay. Growing churches have growing needs, and churches need to recognize legitimate ministry needs and communicate them with grace and understanding. But secondly, we see in verses 2 and 4, this principle, that delegated ministry delegated ministry meets real needs faster and better. Delegated ministry meets real needs faster and better for two reasons. First, because pastors and elders ought not neglect to pray and to preach. Here in verse 2, the apostles gather the whole number of believers, all of the church in Jerusalem, to address this issue, to address this conflict of these Greek-speaking widows who are not receiving their daily bread. And there they say that it is not right, it is not fitting or appropriate that they would give up time spent in preaching and in prayer to go house to house or to tend a money distribution system for these widows. Now, that's not to say that this need is a bad thing or that's not a legitimate need. But the apostles are saying this isn't something that we need to meet. There's a better way to do this. Now, the text here uses this term saving, serving tables. It would not be right for us to give up preaching and prayer to serve tables. This term serving tables is used to describe the distribution system that was being used to care for the widows there in Jerusalem. The, those especially among the church. And that term can mean either literally serving tables like a waiter would in a restaurant, bringing food to a table for people to eat, or in a more figurative way to to, to mean to oversee the financial administration of an organization. And so we're not exactly certain as to how the, how the disciples were meeting the needs of the widows in Jerusalem. Were they going door to door, bringing bread, bringing food for them each day, or maybe an allotment of money? Or did they have kind of a central location where the widows would come to receive um, uh, money for, for buying the day's groceries? The, the text doesn't tell us one way or the other. It could have been one or, one or the other. But that term serving tables could apply to either. The point is this. The service of the apostles, the work of the apostles, and, of, and, and today of a similar equivalent. I'm not saying I'm an apostle. The apostle is a one-time office for those who saw the risen Lord and were commissioned by him to his task. But pastors and elders today perform similar tasks to the apostles. And the point is this, that the service of the apostles and today of pastors and elders in a pattern after the apostles pertains primarily to preaching and, uh, preaching and to prayer. The service of pastors is primarily preaching and prayer. Remember, the apostles are those right, who uh, uh, who very personally received the command to make disciples and to teach obedience to Christ and to witness to His resurrection. As Paul tells us in First Timothy three, he says pastors, elders, too, must be able to teach. The apostles were teachers and preachers. Pastors, according to what, uh, and elders, according to what Paul requires of us in First Timothy three, must also be able to teach as part of their calling. This does not mean that the apostles, nor even pastors today, can never be bothered to roll up their sleeves to do manual labor or to meet congregational needs. Quite the opposite, I think, in fact, we should. I think pastors should be ready to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty and dig around in the dirt and visit people in the hospital. And I think that's absolutely vital to the role of what a pastor does. But, it does but, but this does mean that as the apostles prioritize preaching and praying, so also should pastors and elders... Now, very often there are other things that, that we would like to do. There are times and weeks where I, am, uh, uh, where I ought to be busy preaching and praying, and I want to do other things like fix faucets and, uh, and shovel gravel, right? I don't know why, but just, you know, the restless weeks like that. But the point is this. I don't get to do those things until I've taken care of the priority that God has calling me to, called me to, which is to prepare to preach each and every week as part of my equipping of this body and to pray for you. Delegated ministry meets, meets more needs faster and better because pastors ought to uh, prioritize preaching and prayer in their ministry. But also, secondly, because God has gifted and called certain members of the church to ministry leadership. God has called some of you, even as he's called, as we'll see here in Acts chapter 6, some of them to ministry leadership. They're not pastors. They're not elders. But they're called to serve in the body the apostles recognize that even though this is a task that they cannot personally see to, they personally, the 12 of them, can't make sure all the widows are taken care of. They do know that there are among the believers some people who can and frankly who should see to this ministry. And so they instruct the church to pick out from among yourselves, the apostles say, seven men to lead and oversee this ministry. Now they don't just say pick any seven warm bodies to do this, do they? They just just any set first seven first seven got you 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 that, that, there we go. You guys are the ones you're going to go to it. No, they give requirements for who these servants who these ministry leaders in the church ought to be the requirements of those that God is gifted and called are these first of all to be of good repute to be of good repute. This means literally to be well spoken of and approved by the congregation As such, these would have been men that were well known and visible and active in the body of believers there in Jerusalem. They were bearing a godly reputation among the entire community to be of good repute does not just mean to be popular to be of good repute does not just mean uh, that, that you are seen, but it means that you are well spoken of by others. That when Christians, when other believers, even those outside the church, think of you and speak of you, they speak highly of your character, of your integrity, of your faithfulness and your trustworthiness. These men that the apostles say must take care of these widows and see to their needs must be of good repute, but also they must be full of two things. First, full of the Holy Spirit. Certainly this pertains to being filled with the Holy Spirit in the same way that all believers are filled with and indwelt by the Holy Spirit after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But these men are to more so, I think, to be genuine disciples of Jesus who are clearly and obviously trusting in him for salvation and who are committed to the faith. Certainly they, they would not have been recent converts, but those who had time to be observed and trusted with the duty that they will be assigned Moreover, these men that will be chosen are to be already giving confident witness to the risen Jesus and to the truth of the gospel. The the purpose of the Holy Spirit's Filling the life of the believer. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the life of the believer is to give confident uh, affirmation and confident attestation to the reality of Jesus, to the truth of the gospel. These men who are to be filled with the Spirit here in Acts chapter 6 in order to serve the church must be those who are giving confident uh, affirmation, confident testimony to the risen Jesus. So there will be of good repute, well spoken of, full of the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel regularly, testifying to Jesus. Third of all, to be full of wisdom. These men are going to be entrusted with money and resources in the life of the church and with making sure that, the, that this money and these resources get to the right people in the right way. They are overseeing an important ministry in the life of the church. They cannot, they must not be foolish or untrustworthy or easily manipulated. They must be wise so that the real needs of the church are met in a godly manner. Delegated ministry meets real needs faster and better because pastors and elders can't do it all, but also because God has gifted and called those in the church to see to ministry leadership, to be a part of ministry leadership. And so friends, as we consider this reality, this principle from Acts chapter six and apply it to our own lives, I think we see this, that legitimate ministry needs can and should be met by church members who are called and qualified to meet them. Legitimate ministry needs, not hobbies that you want the church to finance, but legitimate ministry needs that are critical to the gospel to uh, critical to gospel ministry and to making disciples can and should be met by church members that God has called and qualified to meet them. Now, on the flip side of this, uh, I need to preach at myself for a second and Pastor Danny, you too. On the flip side of this, pastors need to be able to let go of and delegate ministry effectively right we're not called to do everything so we ought not try to do everything we ought to seek to delegate and even develop and give ministries to and leadership of ministries to those in the church that God has called and gifted so i need to be on the lookout for that and you all need to be ready to receive it so we uh, the last point considered a couple of questions to determine whether a need was legitimate. So if the answer to both of those questions is yes. Yes, we must do this because God has commanded it or it's critical to the mission. And if we don't do it, it's going to hinder our ability to make disciples. When, a certain, uh, when, when the certainty of the existence of a legitimate ministry need arises, you know that it's legitimate. This is for you. First, ask yourself when you recognize a legitimate ministry need in the church. First, ask yourself, has God equipped me? And is God calling me to meet this need? He's put it on my heart. He's made it visible to me. It's obvious to me that this is a need that we need to fulfill. Is God calling me to meet this ministry? Secondly, uh, the answer, or excuse me, the, the answer to meeting a ministry need in the church, be it administrative, be it care-related, pertaining to physical properties or the finances of the church, leadership in a particular ministry of the church, if it's a legitimate need, the answer to fulfilling that need is almost never, let's just hire someone else to do it. Okay, So if you come to me with a legitimate ministry need, And you have not yet considered whether God would have you to be the one to be responsible to meet that need or to pull together a group of people to meet that legitimate need in the church. And your only desire in meeting that need is to hire someone else. Go take your conversation to someone else. Because God has called and equipped and gifted you the body to be the body to lead and to minister to the church. Now, sometimes it's good and it's wise to hire somebody, depending upon the scope and the degree of the the need at hand. Sometimes it's good to to hire someone, to pay someone, to see to this ministry. But I would say 90% of the time, there are people in the church that are called, qualified, gifted to meet these needs. Thirdly, verses 5 and 6, we see this principle, that God meets needs through joyful saints who listen to godly wisdom. God meets needs through joyful saints who listen to godly wisdom. Let's look at these verses together, verses 5 and 6. The apostles there in verse four, or verses 3 and 4, they give their recommendation as to what, what to be done. In verse 5, we read this. What they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The first thing we see here in verse 5 is that the church is pleased with this plan. The church is pleased with the wisdom of the apostles. Verse 5 tells us what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. There's no doubt in my mind that the solution that the apostles came up with here is rooted in God's word primarily like in Exodus 18 where Moses' father-in-law Jethro tells Moses, dude, you got to get some stuff off your plate. You can't be dealing with the conflicts of every person in Israel all day, every day. So give that task to some others. You deal with the most serious, the most pressing and let, let some other trusted men, some other elders deal with the others. Similar thing is, I think, at play here in Acts chapter 6. I think the apostles are pulling on principles from Exodus to delegate ministry in the church. But also, I believe, that their wisdom, their idea to delegate this ministry is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Who is working powerfully, powerfully through the apostles at this time. Holy Spirit, Bible-driven wisdom and delegation is always pleasing to people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and focused on God's word. I'll say that again. Holy Spirit... Bible-driven wisdom and delegation are always pleasing to people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and focused on God's Word. So, Christian, if you are, if you are walking in the Spirit day-to-day, you're walking in the Word of God day-to-day, you're, you're spending time in God's Word to be shaped by it. When godly wisdom comes from your leaders, from your pastors, from others in the congregation, when it's godly wisdom from God's Word, you'll receive it with joy. In response to being pleased... By the apostles recommendation the church then does exactly what they've said they select seven servants Now the seven men that they choose are all interestingly enough greek-speaking jews. They are hellenistic jewish men We know this by the fact that all of their names are greek names Two of them will come to know better uh, in chapters seven and eight of acts stephen and philip But the others we don't hear any more about in the rest of the new testament. Isn't that interesting? This fact that five of the seven we virtually never hear from again indicates, I believe, that these men served willingly, quietly, wisely, and well. The old adage, no news is good news, seems to ring true here. The fact that we don't hear about these other five is probably a good thing. Right? Because the, the only other two that we hear about are Stephen and Philip. Stephen is, is stoned later on in Jerusalem as the first Christian martyr. Philip later on gives, um, uh, gives testimony to an Ethiopian eunuch who will then go back and begin to take the gospel to the nations. But these other five guys, they just have their, their, their nose to the grindstone. They're doing what God has called them to do. They're doing it quietly, they're doing it willingly, they're doing it wisely, and they're doing it well. These seven men worked hard for the Lord to meet the needs of the church with no care for their own status or reputation as a result of their work. They did it out of, the, out of the joy of serving God and loving the church. What a wonderful example for all ministry leaders to follow, both pastors, deacons, Sunday school teachers, other ministry leaders alike. What a wonderful example for all of us to follow. Would that, would that we would all serve willingly, quietly, wisely, and well. Now, I do want to address one thing about this passage, passage, just briefly, that is worth our attention. Many of you have probably read Acts chapter 6 or been taught Acts chapter 6 as uh, being the initiation of the first deacons in the church. right? As as initiating the office of deacon. But I want to tell you this morning that this is not actually a passage about deacons. Now, the, the, the noun... In Greek, that is diakonos, which means deacon. The noun, which which later in the New Testament will refer to the office of deacon. That noun never appears in this passage, as it does in 1 Timothy 3. Although the verb form of that word, diakoneo, does appear several times, the noun diakonos does not. These men are not referred to as deacons. In fact, the verb for serving... Uh, diaconeo serves both in the context of serving tables As well as in doing the service of the word that the, that the apostles are here in this passage prioritizing So service pertains to physical needs as well as spiritual needs It pertains to uh, meeting the, 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 uh, the real bodily needs of the church body As well as meeting the spiritual needs of the church body Both of those are service Both of those are, are diaconate types of uh, service in the church In this way, we we do rightly to understand that all legitimate Christian ministry is a service. All legitimate Christian ministry is a service. Pastors and preachers serve the word of God as a hot meal to hungry souls. And ministry leaders of physical ministry serve hot bread to hungry stomachs. Both spiritual and physical care of the body are important. Both spiritual and physical care of the body are necessary. And neither one should ever be done to the exclusion of the other. The ministry of the gospel is both a word and deed ministry out in the world, but also inside the body. So so we don't preach and teach to the neglect of our physical needs. And likewise, we don't meet the physical needs of the church body to the neglect of the teaching and preaching of God's word. You follow the point of application for you today. Church at First West is this. That just as these seven men received with joy the call and the task of serving the church, so also you, church members, should receive with gladness the call to serve the church. Receive with gladness the call to serve the church. It is a joy to serve the ministry needs of the body of Christ. It is a joy. In fact, this is what pastors and teachers in the church are called to do among the saints. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. You just want to jot that down to read it later that Christ gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What is it that pastors and shepherds do? They equip the body. They equip the saints for the work of ministry, for, the, for building up the body of Christ. Who are the saints? You are the saints. Who, who are we equipping? You all. What are we equipping you for? Ministry, service of the gospel, both in the body and outside. Listen, it is a joy, a real joy. And I hope, that, I hope that my face is telling you the same thing. But it is a joy for me as one of the pastors here at this church to serve you weekly by preaching to you for your equipping every week as ministers of the gospel. It is a joy for me to do that. I love opening God's word for you each and every week. And, and like I said, I hope that uh, my face shows that. But it's a joy for me to do that. And I pray that it would be a joy for you to minister to your brothers and sisters and to your community with the gospel, with joy. I pray that it would be. Here's some questions to consider as we think about the imperative of joyfully serving the church. First of all, ask yourself this. Do I attend worship and Bible study each week? Do I attend with the intent of being better equipped to serve the church and make disciples? Is that my motive for being a a part of worship every week? Being here in this room or in small group Bible study, do I want to be better equipped to share the gospel and meet the needs of lost people? Or am I here for some other reason? Yesterday at men's breakfast, a really great study as we concluded Uh, our our study in in Ephesians and looking at the the armor of God. And as our discussion uh, moved along, we started talking about just like, why do we study the word and how do I get the most out of God's word? And and I said, the first thing we need to do in thinking about having an effective Bible study and and understanding God's word is we need to know why we're reading it. If you're going to God's word daily for tips to live a better life Monday to Saturday, you will often be disappointed. You will often be disappointed if you're just looking for for ways to balance your checkbook better. The Bible doesn't address that specifically. But do you know what the Bible does do on every page from Genesis to Revelation? Do you know what it is intended to do for us? To reveal the nature and character, the person of God and his desire to save you from your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you approach the Bible looking to have a a better life Monday to Saturday, you're going to miss it every time. But if you approach the Bible with the perspective of, I want to know God. I want to grow in my relationship with him. I want to be changed by Jesus and to know the God who created me more and more on every page. Then you'll start to get a whole lot out of your Bible study. Friends, if you look at your church attendance Sunday morning, uh, Bible study and worship, even your Wednesday nights, if you bring in your kids, you're coming to prayer meeting or you're coming for choir practice. If you're looking to all of those to meet some sort of need in yourself, you're going to miss it every time you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to hate my preaching. You're going to hate your Bible study because you're here for you and not here to be equipped to serve others. The purpose, uh, the, 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 the call of pastors, teachers, uh, uh, leaders in the church is to equip the church for ministry. So if you don't want to do ministry and you don't want to be equipped to do ministry, stop calling yourself a Christian and stop coming to church, at least here, because I promise you I'll disappoint you every week. But if you want to be equipped to preach the gospel and you want to be equipped to know how to pray for your neighbors, you want to know how to love on folks, you want to know God better, you want to grow in the word, come here every week and expect that. And it will be my joy to give it to you. And we will celebrate, and we will rejoice, and we'll give God glory for all the work that he does through us as we minister to our community and among ourselves in the name of Christ and for the gospel. Fourth and finally, verse 7, we see this. Oh, excuse me, I had another question to ask. (laughs) And then I started preaching. First question is this. Do I attend worship and Bible study with the intent of being better equipped to serve the church and make disciples or for some other reason? Second question is this. In terms of joyfully serving the church, ask yourself this. If the way I want to serve uh, in the church is not a real need for the church, like maybe it's a legitimate need, but just not in this church. If the way I want to serve the church is not a real need in the church that I'm a member of, can I be content to serve the real needs of the church in other ways? Right? If not, why not? So let's say God has placed something on your heart, a need on your heart, a way to minister to people. But that's not really a need in the body where you're a, a member right now. Right? We, we don't need a model plane ministry. Okay? But, but God's really laid that on your heart. right? Well, can you be content to serve the church in other ways that are not a model airplane ministry? And if you can't be content to serve the church in ways that are not a model airplane ministry, why is that so? Is it because you're seeking your own self and your own reputation and you want to have an impact in a very specific way? Or is it because God has really called you to this and there is a church body that really does need a model airplane ministry that you need to go and be a part of? I mean, either of those might be true and and I can't tell you which one is which. But you need to spend a lot of time praying about that and asking yourself that question. That if I don't get to serve in the way I want to serve, can I be content to serve a different way? Now, fourth and finally, verse 7, we see this principle that God is pleased, God is is joyful, he is delighted to bless the work of joyful saints who serve together. God is pleased to bless the work of joyful saints who serve together. This is verse 7. And the word of God, so the the men, the seven men, are appointed to this this ministry task. And we read in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. Here in verse 7 we see that because the needs of the church, the real ministry needs of the church are adequately met, that unity is maintained. These Greek-speaking widows get their daily distribution of food and now there's no no longer any complaint in the church. There's no longer any conflict. The conflict is taken care of, unity is maintained, and because unity is maintained, the gospel is prioritized. Now the apostles aren't aren't having to spend time making sure that that everybody gets their daily distribution of bread. They can focus on praying and preaching. And because the gospel can be prioritized by the apostles and the rest of those in the church as well, because the gospel is prioritized, the gospel is then preached. Preached. When the gospel is a priority in the life of the church, it will get preached, it will get communicated, it will be shared, both internally and especially externally. And here I think at this point, we should take notice that Luke does not say who is doing the preaching of the word, does he? He just says, the word of God continued to increase. He just simply states that it's going out, that it's growing, that it's multiplying. I love this statement by Luke. I love the way he addresses this because I believe it implies, and we'll see this explicitly later on in Acts, it implies that the believers in the church are taking upon themselves the responsibility to proclaim the gospel as they go, as they live their lives in Jerusalem. The fact that it's not just the apostles preaching is a wonderful fact. Everyone in the church is taking part in this gospel preaching ministry. Engaging people in conversations about Jesus, pointing them to salvation is in Jesus, is not just for apostles. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for, for worship pastors and children's ministry leaders and, and uh, student ministry leaders. It's not just for Sunday school teachers and for evangelists like Billy Graham. Engaging people in conversations about Jesus to point them to salvation is the work of every Christian. It was in Acts chapter 6, and friends, God intends it still today in 2018. So because needs are adequately met, unity is maintained. Because unity is maintained, the gospel is prioritized. When the gospel is prioritized, it is preached. And when the gospel is preached, people are saved. Verse 7 tells us that the number of, of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem as the word increased. And, catch this, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests in the temple became obedient to the faith. Even these men, these Levites in Israel, whose job it is to do service in the temple, daily service in the temple, are now, because of the the, the work of the church, being persuaded to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus. They're being persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for, and they're placing their lives in his hands. Now, there were at the time, I think, uh, some scholars say, in Jerusalem, perhaps up to 8,000 priests who served in the temple in various ways. Up to 8,000 priests in the temple, who served in the temple in different ways. Only a small minority of them, though, church, would have been part of the 70 men that we know as the Sanhedrin. Only 70, so so 8,000 minus 70 is 7,930, if my math is good. So 7,930 more or less priests, a great many number of whom become obedient to faith in Jesus. These 7,930 or so of these priests mostly would have been poor, faithful attendants to the services of the temple, who, though under the influence of the Sanhedrin, they followed the the direction and and that of the Sadducees and, and Pharisees and high priests were there, these common everyday priests, men of the tribe of Levi, Levi, are now finding the fullness of their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, now made real in Jesus of Nazareth. God's promises, God's promised deliverer from sins. What a wonderful testimony to the gospel. What a wonderful work that the gospel is doing in Acts chapter 6. Even among those who may be predisposed to not believe the gospel. Because the church is meeting needs internally. They can more effectively uh, uh, preach the gospel externally. And as a result, people are coming to faith. Last point of, of maybe instruction or application for us this morning is this. That joyful and united churches who serve the mission of the gospel together... Share together in the fruit of the gospel. I'll say that again. Joyful and united churches who serve the mission of the gospel to make disciples, to make sure people hear of Jesus. Joyful and united churches that do that share together in the fruit of the gospel. If a church is not fruitful with the gospel, if new people are not coming to place faith in Christ for the first time as a regular part of their ministry, if a church is not fruitful with the gospel in this way, friends, it is not always the pastor who is to blame. I'm not trying to shirk responsibility myself. I have a great responsibility to teach and to preach and to lead here, but... Church members who will not serve the real needs and the real mission of the gospel. Church members who are content to allow ministry to be professionalized and are intent on merely being entertained by the so-called ministries of the church. Those kind of church members are the chief culprits in struggling and dying churches all across America today. Church members who want to sit and just receive and receive and consume and consume and consume and never give are, are almost always church members of dying churches. The call of every pastor and the majority of his time spent each week is to be faithful in prayer and preparation to preach and to teach God's word, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But listen, churches and church members who expect their pastors to do all the ministry of the church, give their pastors all sorts of excuses not to prioritize prayer and preaching. Can you say that again? Churches and church members who expect their pastors to do all the ministries of the church give their pastors all sorts of excuses not to prioritize the two things that they are absolutely called to do, to pray and to preach. They give them excuses to neglect their primary calling. So brothers and sisters, let me plead with you here. I pray that you would not let me have any excuse not to prioritize prayer and preaching. Joyful saints who work together to, to, to minister in the gospel, both internally and externally, share together in the fruit of the gospel. But churches that are full of church members that don't want to do the work of ministry, that want to put it all on the shoulders of their, of their pastors and those that they've hired to do ministry, give their pastors all sorts of excuses not to do the things that they must do. Listen, God has gifted you, church, to meet the needs of our faith family in ways that will help us to better proclaim the way of salvation both reminding us internally as we teach, but also outside of these walls, Monday to Saturday, as we take the gospel to our neighbors and our family members and our friends and our co-workers, God has gifted you to help us do that. So let us then, I pray, commit to being a church that is united in Christ, united in the gospel of Jesus, for the mission of making disciples. Who all of us from top to bottom, left to right, across all ages and ethnicities and places in life are committed to serving Christ and his mission in whatever way God would call in whatever way God would equip each and every one of us to do so you are, we are collectively God's missionary force, God's, God's disciple-making force in this world. Could he do it without us? Absolutely. But he's not chosen to. He has chosen to include, to involve each and every one of us in the, in the mission of making disciples, making followers of Jesus. My, my calling is to equip you to do that better. And I pray by God's grace that, that I do and that I'll continue to do so as we grow in our ability to do ministry. But your task is to be equipped, right? And then to do ministry. And if you need equipping in, in other more specific ways, you gotta let somebody know, Right? Let me know, let Pastor Danny know Let, let, uh, let Becky Henderson or, or Corey Jones Our other uh, two that are directing ministries on our staff Let them know how we can help you to be better equipped to do ministry Let us know if you see needs in the church that need to be met And let us know if God is maybe calling you to meet that need And let's talk and pray together About how that might enhance our gospel uh, Preaching, disciple-making ministry here If you look on the front of your worship guide this morning You see down on the bottom our mission statement. First Baptist West Albuquerque exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is job number one for us, church family at First West, to make disciples of Jesus so that we can glorify God. And we don't do it in our own efforts. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that's not job number one number one in all of our minds and in all of our hearts, it's not, if that's not what we're committed to first and most, we've missed it somewhere. That's the mission that I want to equip us toward. That's the mission that I want you to embrace and to be ministers of both within our body and outside in the world. I pray God would make us faithful to do that. As we meet needs both internally and externally, we'll be able to prioritize the preaching of Jesus. And when we preach Jesus, we'll see people saved, church. So let's do what God has called us to do. Let's be faithful to that. Friend, this morning, you, you might realize that in all of this, that you don't necessarily have a place in a church because you're not a believer. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're just visiting here today for the first time. I'm glad you're here. But understand this, we're not a group of people that just get together to, to fluff our egos every Sunday morning. We gather here to worship the God who created us, whom we have all rebelled against in our sin. We've done things that are morally wrong that we know are wrong. Your own conscience would tell you that you're a sinner. You know that you've done things that, that are not right. Our sin separates us from God. It breaks the relationship of love and worship and, and knowledge of God that we are created to, to have. But God and his love for us does not leave us in our sinful, broken position. He takes on flesh and the person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who lived a perfect life who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. The Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. What we deserve for our rebellion against God is death and eternal separation from him. But God does not desire that for us, so he makes a way that we might be reunited to him. He makes a way for our sins to be paid for. He sends his own son, who is perfect and righteous and holy, to die in our place, to take the penalty for our sin. So that in his death, he pays for our sin. And when he is raised from the dead, he shows that he's victorious over death and victorious over sin. So that anyone who would place faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, rest your life on the person and the work, the promise of Christ, that person will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. And in that moment of faith, you will become a part of God's uh, universal global family of faith. But God is also calling you to join your life to the life of a local church where you can be equipped to do the ministry that God has saved you and called you to do. Friend, if you don't know Christ the way that our family of faith knows Christ, and you want to know him that way today... In a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And, and I would ask that you would just, with boldness and courage, come and find me. Come talk to me. I'll be standing here uh, here at the front to receive you. Talk to me about, what, uh, about your decision to want to follow Jesus. And I would love to, to counsel with you, to pray with you, to know how you can be saved today and be a part of God's family. Yeah. Church at First West, let's be faithful to do what God has called us to do. Let us ask him for wisdom and discernment to know how he has gifted us and called us and let us joyfully serve the needs of the church so that the gospel can be preached more effectively in the world. Let's pray.